0: Hey, and good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, a spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Coming up on the show today, in the first hour from uh, the December twenty-first, welcome and introduction of uh, Catherine Hernandez, and this was emceed by Carolyn Smart in Room five seventeen Watson Hall. You'll hear Catherine's uh, reading, discussion, and Q and A. This will actually continue. Um, about five minutes, or I think, into the second hour. In the second hour, then, starting about five minutes into it, as I said, uh, and I introduce the hour. Uh, I try, I'm trying to catch up on some open mic readings. You're going to hear the final three readings in the August 7th and the Journey Continues open mic event uh, with readings by Eric Folsom, Joshua Schiff, And me. And then, as we begin the September readings in the same series, you'll hear readings by Gwen Whitford, Alyssa Cooper, and Jamie Pfeiffer. And first, though, uh, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I do have a number of quickly approaching events, as usual, but that will happen at the end of the second hour today. So let's go ahead and just jump into it. From the September 21st, welcome and introduction of Catherine. Hernandez, And again, emceed by Carolyn Smart, uh, introduced by her at the very start uh, in Watson Hall. Uh, you'll hear Catherine's reading, discussion, and Q&A. And again, uh, that will continue uninterrupted through this first hour and in, uh, into about five minutes of the second hour. So I'll catch you in the second hour. Do please enjoy this. Until then, again, Catherine Hernandez as introduced by Carolyn Smart.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome. It is my pleasure today to introduce you to our 2018 Writer in Residence at Queen's University, Catherine Hernandez. Just a few words to start about the format of this occasion. Catherine will read for a short while, take questions from the audience, and then we'll throw this open for refreshments. Please help yourselves liberally. Book sales and signing and more private opportunities to chat with Catherine. To begin, we would like to acknowledge that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. When we perform a land acknowledgement, we make what is invisible, visible. We add multiple perspectives and diverse voices into the conversation of how we interact with our world. This act of naming, of inviting something into language, is a principle of advocacy we can all engage with, primary to us as readers, writers, and literary people. I would like to thank the English department head, Shelley King, for her assistance with the acquired funding, and Karen Donnelly for all her organizational brilliance. Thank you to the campus bookstore, who are here today with books for sale. We are indebted the generosity of the Fund for Visiting Artists and Residents of Queen's, as well as the Canada Council for the Arts for providing the funds necessary for this residency, which offers students and the larger community of Queen's and Kingston opportunities of sharing with artists, in this case an award-winning writer, performer, and social activist. Catherine Hernandez appeared to burst onto the literary scene with her multi-voiced debut novel, Scarborough. Published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2017, the same week that her book was published, she closed her home daycare. But in reality, she'd had a parallel life in the arts for many years, and her accomplishments are legion. She is the current artistic director of the Current Performing Arts. Her one-woman show, The Femme Playlist, premiered at Buddies in Bad Times Theater in 2014 as part of the After Rock Play Series co-produced by B Current, Eventual Ashes, and Sulong Theatre. Her other plays include Sing Kill, Fugen Asian Canadian Theatre Company in association with Factory Theatre, Eating with Lola, Sulong Theatre and the Next Stage Festival, Kilt Pins, Sulong Theatre, and Future Folk, collectively written by the Sulong Theatre Collective, produced by Theatre Class Mirai. She has served playwright residencies at Theater Pass Mirai, Carlos Bulosan Theater, Shaw Festival Theater, Blythe Festival Theater, Buddies in Bad Times Theater, and Night Swimming Theater. Her children's book, M is for Mustache, a pride ABC book, was published by Flamingo Rampant, and her plays Kilt Pins and Sing Kill were published by Playwrights Canada Press. Scarborough won the Jim Wong Chu Award for the unpublished manuscript, was shortlisted for the Toronto Book Awards, shortlisted for the Evergreen Forest of Reading Award, and longlisted for Canada Reads. Scarborough made the best of 2017 lists for the Globe and Mail, National Post, Quill and & and CBC Books. Catherine was named one of 17 writers to watch by CBC Books, and very recently her novel Scarborough was optioned for film and funded by Telefilm Canada. It is also the Queen's Reads choice for the current academic year and is being read widely by students and the Queen's community in general. During her residency, she plans to continue work on her novel in progress, Crosshairs. She's also at work on two other projects, her second children's book, I Promise, forthcoming from Arsenal Pulp Press in 2019, and she says her final play, Library, to be produced by Geordie Productions in 2019. Over the summer, Catherine and I have been making plans to bring diverse younger writers to campus for various events. I encourage you to mark the afternoon and evening of November the 9th, Friday, in your calendars for workshops, readings, and performances by various artists, including Kinesia Lubrin, Lubrin, Kai Cheng Thom, Joshua Whitehead, and Casey Plett. And Catherine's focus during her tenure on campus alongside her ongoing individual manuscript discussions is to meet with members of the LGBTQ2S and racialized communities to share their stories in safe space workshop situations. You may make an appointment to meet with her through her email address at theloudlady, fun word, at gmail.com. Catherine's commitment to anti-oppression and decolonialization, as well as her incredible energy and originality, mean that this will be a particularly exciting residency for Queens and the wider community. I encourage you to make every effort to share in her knowledge and generosity. Please join me in welcoming proud queer woman of color, radical mother, activist, theater practitioner, award-winning author, Catherine Erdner.
2: intro ever. Usually when people are introing, um, you know, usually you've written your bio and 90% of the time they're looking at a word, then they're looking at you like, did I say this right? (laughs) And then you have to sort of humor them, smile weakly. (laughs) Hello, University, it's so wonderful to be here. I am, um, I'm very honored to be here. I if you were to tell me a year ago that this would have happened, I would have told you I was lying But a little more than a year ago. Probably around this time, I would have been waking up children from their nap and changing their diapers. And so it's very strange to be living this can-lit life. It's wonderful, and, I'm, and I feel blessed um, to know you all. Uh, so as mentioned, I'm, my residency, the folks will be doing research um, uh, for my next novel, Crosshairs. So Crosshairs is um, takes place about five years into the future and it's adjacent to our reality now in this post-Trump reality post-Ford reality um, where uh, racialized and LGBTQ2S folks have to actually take arms against white supremacy and explores uh, really big questions of what is the price of fighting back and what is the price of staying passive and I know that a lot of people who sit at the crossroads of um, various intersections of oppression sort of know what I'm talking about about that constant dialogue in your head about am I safe enough Uh, am I going to be safe tomorrow and one day do I actually have to uh, own a gun; those kinds of things are uh, constantly, especially for myself. With um, being in a family where we do have one member who is um, a transgender person, um, we never know if we're going to be safe. So, um, during my residency, what I do you go, easy, easy email to remember, remember right? The loudlady@gmail.com. Uh, we, I am conducting um, anonymous interviews with people, um, anybody who might have uh, survived a genocidal campaign, Um, so it could have been uh, anybody from, uh, for example, if you survived um, the Rwandan genocide, uh, Khmer Rouge, any of those um, genocides, I would like to speak with you and um, I won't take, uh, I would only take the time that's taken that will be respectful of your schedule and um and your your testimony will remain anonymous uh another source i'm looking for are people who might have served in the armed forces uh and if and or if you are have been um if you are queer or trans and have served in the armed forces i'm interested in speaking to you so uh but yeah and, and you'll see what um, we're going with this novel um this uh I'm going to be reading a couple of passages. Mainly, the main character is Kay, who is a Jamaican, Filipina, uh, queer man, feminine. And he works as a drag queen before um, what's called the renovation, or like a new world order, in which um, racialized and and, uh, queer folks are um, being used in work camps. Uh, Are basically shuffled off and this particular passage is not it's it's basically his retelling of uh, the story of Bahadur who is a transgender masculine uh, queer from Iran and he talks about um, they talk about what it was like to come to Canada as a refugee just before the changeover and realizing um, that they're put into a very precarious position of being a refugee and now being completely unwanted by the com- by the country that they've just um, sought refuge in. So uh, they are working at a recycling plant uh, because of the fact that they do not have a workers' permit. SIN number, please. I don't have one. Work permit? No. The middle-aged black woman scratched her head through her beige industrial hair cap. Putting down her clipboard, she leaned into Bahadur. Come with me. She led Bahadur down a long hallway with threadbare carpeting. She opened a fire door into a stairwell, then paused. What's your name again? Bahadur. Okay, so here's the thing. We are going to the lower level factory where the majority of the recycling takes place. Recycling, I I thought this was for loading. I am very good at lifting and packing. I can see that, but that's the problem. People can see you. We don't want anyone to see you. Bahadur looked at their winter boots from Ferruze, now soaked from last night's snowstorm. I've been where you are. I know, I, I came here from Eritrea to this exact factory five years ago before my permit came in. These are jobs regular Canadians don't want, but new people, refugees, illegals, they all need it. They have family. They can't wait for paperwork, and I'm guessing you can't either. Bahadur nodded. Good, let's get you some steel-tool boots. The people in the factory resembled ants. Dust-covered with goggles, Bahadur took their place amongst the masses. Stand here and watch, Isaac said. Bahadur's training supervisor began selecting certain items from the endless line of garbage. I want you to just concentrate in electronics, nothing else. Once you find something, you are to throw it in this bin right here. Isaac tilted the bin to show various VHS tapes, channel changers, batteries. Using thin, rubberized work gloves that did not protect from neither uh, moisture nor filth, Bahadur picked electrical wires from amongst the piles of unfurled diapers, TV antennas from half-warped burgers, half-wrapped burgers teeming with maggots. Countless times, a rat would jump amongst the detritus and attempt to hitch a ride onto the shoulders of one of the workers. It was typical to watch co-workers scream and dance about, striking their own body to rid their gear of vermin. No one could stop and assist. They all had to keep going. The only time they could stop was when the 30-minute alarm would go off to allow the workers to sit for a whopping two minutes. So all they did was watch and sort at the same time. If you see any of these, I want... Ricky, the only white man in the factory, stood opposite Bahadur, leafing through an ancient copy of Hustler. Bahadur saw images of hairy crotches and buxom breasts gracing each page and almost vomited. The thought of nude bodies amongst the putrid landfill made their stomachs turn. You don't see them like this anymore. I love hairy pussies. This is beauty. Of course, these women are like 70 years old now, but whatever. In the lunchroom. The workers try, uh, would try and wash their inflamed hands clean enough to eat, but barely did the dispenser have enough soap. Knowing full well that they were in danger, Bahadur kept silent in the men's room so as not to reveal their higher voice. The men at the, uniro- uh, the urinals began peering over their shoulders to stare at Bahadur as they washed up. Didn't I see you in the men's room? One worker removed his comment and sat down in the lunch room amongst the other men, equally as curious about Bahadur. Why were you in the men's room? Aren't you a woman? Huh? Maybe she's a she male. Really? Are you? Hey, Bahadur, over here. Ricky, the perverted white guy, invited Bahadur to his table with an eager swing of his arm. No one else sat with him. Bahadur made their way to his table and to the table. His table and ate quietly, hoping for the conversation to end. So how does that work anyway? You know, muffin bumping. Ricky banged the back of his fist together, sincerely asking for a demonstration. The next day, Bahadur tried to go to the women's washroom instead. We've had some complaints. Some of the women in the factory have said that they caught him looking at them while they were on the toilet. Isaac leaned his office chair back enough that Bahadur feared he would fall. With their goggles strung around their neck, Bahadur shrugged their shoulders. I can't see them. We all pee in stalls. So then you're telling me you've tried to peek, then? Bahadur stopped using the washroom altogether, trans bladder. Surely, an eight hour no pee ship wasn't going to kill them. After one week, they developed a urinary tract infection. With their crotch sore and throbbing, they waited for the 30 minute alarm to go off and ran to the men's washroom to pee in one of the closed stalls. It was just a trickle. The banged a fist on the wall- stall's walls. Fuck. They looked down. Two pairs of steel toed boots stood outside the stall. Come on out, she The two on the other side of the door laughed. Bahadur managed to escape the stall, but not without one of those workers cupping their chest to confirm they were in fact, in their eyes, a woman. Don't ever come back, you fucking freak. The next day, Bahadur allowed themselves to pee through their hazmat suit. It didn't matter anymore. They were covered in dirt anyway. The chemicals in the air had all the workers coughing. The moisture in the garbage had everyone's hands rotten. pee didn't matter. It was payday. Bahadur sorted garbage, considering that envelope of illegal earnings. Enough to pay for rent at the shared housing, groceries, and maybe a fun trip to the dollar store to buy something frivolous and sweet. An alarm went off. That's weird. Ricky sat down on his stool across from Bahadur. It's not time for the 30-minute alarm, but I'll take it. He took off his helmet and scratched his head. His face shifted, seeing something from behind Bahadur. Who the fuck are they? They bled down the complicated the complicated steel stairwells in their leather jackets and boots. At first, it was a spectacle, like a choreographed dance, all in sync and graceful in their movements. But when the workers saw Isaac with his hands above his head, everyone stood up off of their stools. Isaac attempted to flee and was swiftly shot. screams. All it takes is one person to be killed, to be humiliated, to be raped, to make everyone complicit. They rounded up the brown and black folks without any further fight, placed them into several cube trucks and drove off. Hello? Anyone there? Ricky's voice echoed amongst the silent machinery of the empty factory, or at least he thought it was empty. Bahadur, at the first sight of the boots, jumped into a pile of recycled clothes, covered themselves, and waited for quiet. So, um, the Okay, structured so that you um, a lot of LGBTQ2s um, fiction usually you'll see um, the usual tra- trajectory is you'll see someone who is closeted, then comes out of the closet and then somehow comes to terms with who they are at the end. Um, The way that this book is structured so far is that you believe that it's going to follow that same trajectory. But you understand that then, at a certain point, all of the characters in the novel are in a great amount of danger because of who they are. And so they all have to go into hiding. what ends up happening is that there um, is an underground movement that understands on the day of a particular uh, political summit they are going to march along the traditional route on um, Young Street, but going north towards um, uh, Young and uh, Young and Bloor in order to uh, pro- protest uh, against the um, new regime. Um, the <clears throat> So, what I'm going to read you is from the point of view of Kane. This is the protagonist who um, describes what it was like to um, discover the world of drag. Mm -hmm. That same week, I got a job washing dishes at a gay bar called Epic. Everything about Epic was small, it was an alleyway conversion of a building like a thin slice of gayness on Church Street. Six small tables, one small stage lit up by one sad LED, and me, skinny and eager, washing dishes in the back kitchen over a tiny sink, not large enough to fit five glasses at a time. It's not like we get a ton of customers eating here. It's more like a place to grab a drink and watch a show, said Henry, Epic's owner. He was an astonishingly tall white man with a long and discerning face. I would do dishes myself, but he held up his enormous paws. My hands are so dainty and soft. I like the way he held onto the vowels of his words before capping them with a tiny tap of a consonant. Soft. My first Thursday, I was gathering glasses from the bar and checking for watermarks. Payday, Henry entered in full drag, holding a stack of envelopes. Gerald, he handed a check to the bartender beside me. B, he handed a thicker envelope full of bills to the waitress whose work permit had not yet arrived, so she was always paid in cash. And you, young man, Henry winked at me. It's only day three for you. Just keep doing what you're doing and you'll get paid next payday, All right. Henry had mistaken my awe of him for longing for pay. I stood there unable to move with the sight of him, now in full dress. I had never seen a drag queen before. He caught a glimpse of himself in a mirror behind the bar. Fucking shit, my eyebrows. He turned his head right and left to confirm that they were indeed uneven. When he began making his way to his office behind the stage, I could not help but follow him. He had left his office door open enough for me to see him wheel his chair closer to the desk and position a mirror in front of his face. He hummed, himself, he hummed to himself a song about unrequited love and began brightening through a large pink leather handbag. He slammed onto the desk a glue stick, a jar of powder, a large brush, and a tube of concealer. Using a tissue, he removed his paint on eyebrows. He clicked his tongue, a tragedy, a mess, he started over again. Glue stick along the fibers of his eyebrows, powder to set the glue, concealer two perfect brown arches well above his brow line. His brow line. You know, I don't pay you to stare at me while I do this. I hid. No, no, come in. I froze. Kay, come in. Really, I was just joking. I tiptoed into his office, four by six feet. The walls were covered in black and white photos of people smoking cigarettes and laughing, a woman flashing her breasts at the camera, two men in an embrace sticking their tongue out. A line of men in tutus doing the can-can. Come, sit. He slid out a small folding stool that was filed between his desk and the filing cabinet. I cranked it open and sat. I wanted to cross my legs, but there was no room in that tiny office room to do so. Where are you at with the dishes, Kay? Almost done, sir. Oh, God, please don't call me sir. You know I have to call my father, sir. My own father. What a fucking prick. Anyway. When I'm in drag, you may call me Lady McBitch." I nodded. I stared at Lady's reflection in the mirror. It was extraordinary. Hmm, I don't have your shade in my makeup case, he began looking through his bag. My heart skipped a beat. Was this Christmas? But I think I have a spare set of lashes and a ton of lipsticks for you to choose from. A line of glue was drawn along the length of the lashes. You gotta do two layers, see. One for the base, and then you wait for it to get a bit gummy. Then you put another layer that sticks to your eyelids. Simple. Lady blew on the lashes until it became gummy, put another layer of glue, then placed them carefully along my eyeline. The wet along the rim of my lids felt tingly cold. He painted Vaseline on my mouth and used its stickiness to adhere red sparkles onto my lips. He reached into his handbag again and pulled out a lemon yellow wig. Now, it's not a lace front. It's more like some possum your dad run over with a car, but a little different now. He made me tilt my head forward as he positioned, I have I really get so nervous doing this voice because I'm like, I, I have so many drag queen friends and I just, I really want to do well by them. Um, it's like, that's nothing like me, woman. Um, he made me tilt my head forward and he positioned the cap of the wig to hug the nape of my neck. I slowly sat up and Lady used a rat tail comb to smooth out my new tresses. You ready? She positioned the mare towards me, and I looked. Oh, sorry, hon,
1: looks like you're tearing up. Maybe I
2: put too much glue. It wasn't the glue. I was crying. I looked so beautiful.
3: That's... that's me.
2: Yes. Yes, Kay, that's you. Um, and Kay does his first um, drag show, and this is when I reveal... In the world of drag, I, um, the intense racism and misogyny that happens in that world, as much as I have so much respect for those artists, it's, um, I, I think they've earned themselves a very difficult conversation that they need to get through. That night I waited stage right for my big moment. Lady McBitch began the evening as she usually did with some witty repartee alongside Queen Mum. Queen Mum's shtick often involved lip syncing to 80s British punk, wearing flower printed dresses fit for royalty. Queen Mum waved her cupped hand hello to the audience and everyone cheered. Sex pistols played on full blast from our cheap sound system. Oh look, there was a sale at goodwill. Lady dryly looked Queen Mum up and down. Queen Mum returned the look by inspecting Lady's blue organza extravaganza. Will you give the audience a twirl? Queen Mum said in her surprisingly deep, raspy voice. She gestured towards Lady, then looked at the audience with expert timing. Don't you just love estate sales? The audience winced. Nothing like stealing a dress off a dead lady. After the uh, applause settled, Lady winked at me, then took a breath. Well, tonight, I am one happy, drag Mama. My heart grew two sizes. Tonight we have a very special performance from none other than Caramel K. The audience cheered. Yes, this is her first gig. I taught her everything she knows about drag. I am so proud of her. Queen Mum put her hands on her hip, readying the audience for another joke. But did you teach her how to get a job? Some of the audience members coughed in shock. Most of them laughed. The smile on my face wilted. (laughs) Do you know this joke? Queen Mum raised her hand as if she were conducting an orchestra, orchestrating my demise. What is the difference between a black guy and a large pizza? Lady awkwardly guffawed, then managed to spit out. I don't know. What is the difference, Queen Mum? A large pizza can feed a family of four. The white people in the audience laughed and laughed. An Asian couple shifted in their seats uncomfortably. My ears were ringing. "'Aw, come here, Caramel K.' "'Or is it Caribbean K?' "'The audience laughed again. "'I did as I was told. "'My arms were numb. "'I walked towards her in my new ensemble. "'I smiled. "'You know I'm joking, right? "'You thought what I said was funny, right?' "'She smiled this devilish smile at me, "'pleading, forcing. "'There was a long pause. "'I knew this was my opportunity to make things right, "'to break the ice. "'I decided to throw shade instead. "'I'm sorry, what?' Queen Mum looked at the audience, looked at Lady, then at me, a wider smile. It's all in good fun, hon. Sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't speak, asshole. (laughs) The audience gasped, they choked, then they laughed Queen Mum off stage. That night, I performed Deborah Cox's Nobody's Supposed to Be Here and enjoyed a standing ovation. As I walked off the stage, I looked straight at Queen Mum and gave her my most royal wave. Thank you. <laughs>
4: um,
2: uh, one thing that I will share with you really quickly before we can maybe just have like a bit of a discussion is um, the one of the people that are um, helping with the movement is, is a white ally by the name of Beck. Is a rogue. Uh, military officer who teaches the group how to uh, use guns for the uprising. And his... What he does is he actually... uh, The movement is is actually embodied. So it's more than words. It's more than actions. it's, It's the body, the soul, belief, everything, molded together in order for their allyship to be embodied. So the four lines that they say over and over again that I really want to leave with you is, when I am still, I am complicit. When I see wrong, I step forward. When I am told I am wrong, I listen and change. When change is led, I step aside and uplift. And as someone who is queer and brown, um, has been a single mother for many years, just recently married, I I still hold a lot of privilege. I am cisgender. As an Asian presenting person, I have a great amount of privilege compared to my um, indigenous and uh, black communities and and chosen family. And because I grew up in a super anti-native, anti-black household, I try to acknowledge my privilege every day by really putting these four lines into action. And I welcome you all to do the same. so I'll leave it at that. I guess we can discuss, yeah, a little bit. Does that sound cool? Like a good way of moving forward? Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, and I, I guess if you wanted to talk about Scarborough too, we can do that too. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So do, does anybody have any questions? Any comments? Anything like that? <coughs> and it's okay. I mean, like, it could be. Don't feel
3: silly. Yes, dear. Thank you. Oh my gosh.
2: I was like, this is going to be one of those moments. I'm just going to slowly walk out
3: of the room. <laughs> First
2: of all, I feel, like I feel so great being in your presence. Reading Scarborough for me initially, I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? Oh um, um, but my question to you, I guess, speaking on the lines of Schiff and, and writing these stories, how what's your writing process? Surrounding like communities, like when you think about like indigenous communities, thinking of Scarborough or even um, Crossroads, I believe Crosshairs. Her- crosshairs. Yeah. Cross-hairs, yeah. Kind of How do you go through your writing process, um, speaking from the lenses of maybe communities that you're not, you don't necessarily maybe belong to identify? Yeah. Or like that? that is such a good question. That is such a good question because I know that a lot of us are um, authors are. are uh, we grapple with it. A lot of people don't even ask the question. A lot of people are just like, I'm not going to, me the answers to that question are so complex I don't want to even answer it for myself, so I'm just going to go on and assume that I have the authority to speak on a community's behalf, right? So um, for Scarborough and for this book, uh, I make sure that I have people that are going to hold me accountable for how I am depicting a particular community. So for example, um, the entire uh, chapter with Winsome, who is a uh, a Trinidadian woman in Scarborough, um, and a restaurant owner, it took three Trinidadian people in order for me to edit that piece properly. And I need to, and I pay them for their time. That's another thing too. So first off, ask people to to be there um, for you, to support you and make sure that um, you're being accountable. Be open to them saying, no to whatever material that you have, and then pay them for their time because um, they should be compensated. And it doesn't have to be, if they're open to a um, non-capitalist form of compensation, do it. If they're like, no, pay me, then pay them. And if you can't pay them, it might not be the time for you to write this piece. It's just the, the truth. Um, it's not, sometimes I hear a lot of people who in their journey of allyship, they believe it's like, well, I tried to find someone, but I didn't, so I wrote it anyways, the way I thought it was gonna be. There are ways to find that information. Um, and uh, like, for example, like with Scarborough, at that time, I was the owner of a home daycare making less than minimum wage uh, because it was the best job that I could have as a single mother at that time. So that I didn't have to pay for daycare for my own child, so um, I uh, I just gave people loaves of bread that I made because I make really good bread. So uh, I would do, and that was a good sense of comfort. Like you know, it took me how many hours to to make this, and and that felt like a, a like a, a a fair way of exchanging um, the energy. Um, however, obviously, if I was like. Um, it's for, you know, people are like, it's for exposure or um, they're just like empty promises. Uh, I don't like that. I really want people to give people access to something that uh, it takes a lot of time for me to make create or or give them like like, rental space at my theater company something like that. Um, But yeah, Um, uh, the biggest thing is like being open to people saying no. So right now um, the first draft of Crosshairs is in the hands of about Five,
5: one,
2: two. Yeah, no, six people uh, here and in the states that are looking over the script to tell me if what I've said is um, needs to be shifted at all. So, uh, for example, and I can tell you who's on the, the committee because it's good for me to tell people like who's actually keeping me accountable. Is that um, we have. Um, my brother-in-law, Tyrone Tom, who is a Navajo Nation police officer, is overlooking everything in regards to indigenous politics and also um, everything in regards to warfare in the novel. That's, it's very, it's very uh, nerve-wracking writing things about war. Because it's like, you know when you're watching an action film and you're seeing so many things like, to describe that as a writer is very nerve-wracking. So he's making sure that the terminology is correct. I have um, another Canadian Armed Forces person um, who's stationed in uh, Thailand right now, who's overlooking it. I have um, uh, people who from the trans community, from the disabilities community, from um, the Muslim community, uh, and the Black community who are looking at this, so that I, I really can't—I can't let anything slip, you know. And, and that level of accountability, I'm, I, I feel is the bare minimum that I could do to make sure that crosshairs will do um, will we will be honorable to the communities that it's representing yeah yes um, I
6: I'm, uh, I'm wondering as like as a as a, as a writer myself and this uh, and I'm sure there other many other writers around um, at what point did you did you did you find there was a point that you came out of your of yourself as a writer what I
7: mean what I mean by that is when you um, is there was there
6: a point in your career before your major publications that made you decide um, that you were going to pursue this and And not only that but also engendering you the sort of faith that is required to have a career that isn't sort of easily um uh
7: uh attainable or or accessible
2: um okay so sorry i need to sit like this because when i go behind a podium it always feels like i'm part of the world health organization i'm giving everyone some really really bad news um hopefully it doesn't flip uh so um Okay, so I knew from a very, very young age that I was meant to tell stories. My mother, uh, who just passed away in November, she was a um, a pioneer of Filipino folk dance education here. She was always like, we have to go every Sunday to learn our indigenous traditions because brown people's stories matter and you you need to share it, right? And so it's worth it to spend the time to do so. Um, So I I always understood that storytelling was important. And there was this weird thing when you sort of trust that the universe is constantly trying to tell you that you are a storyteller. Things like, um, I remember being like four years old, sitting in a large armchair while, uh, I remember it was like a man in his 50s was telling me about how conflicted he was with his new wife because... You know, his last marriage ended, so, and then so quickly he got married again. He's like, I just don't know. I mean, that's unnatural. It's unnatural that a man of his age would be talking to a four-year-old about his problems. But that has been my life. People like, oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, um, for example, I was in Guatemala, and I was staying with a, a Mayan family, and and I, I, I can speak Spanish, but very very limited. Okay, and also I was suffering from like. Uh, you know, being on a plane, like, all this jet lag, even though it's, like, an hour difference. I was just, like, I was a little bit um, flummoxed being there. And uh, I remember him, just, like, out of nowhere. He's, like, you know, I don't know. I feel like I don't know what to do with my father. He's, uh, you know, he's an older man, lost my mom, and now he's just dating here and there. Like, completely unnatural. And then his wife telling me about how... You know her. uh, You know my sister. She just can't have a child, and for me, getting pregnant is so easy. I don't know if our relationship is going to make it. Very weird that these people are so open to me all the time. But I've accepted that that's part of my life. Is that people open up to me about numerous things? So I knew that the reason why they're open to me is because the universe is telling me I have to hold these stories. I'm supposed to hold them. I went to Ryerson University and I'm open about this because like, fucking who cares, right? At, um, Ryerson University I was basically taught to be a white person. You have to speak with an English accent or an American accent you have to learn Shakespeare and hopefully one day maybe you're going to be like spirit holder number three at Shaw Festival right? Um, and I was like screw that, I'm not going to do that and it, it really wounded me. For three years I was told that I was not a storyteller I reclaimed that when I saw in my research that there are these um, uh, people in the Philippines, so there's a tribe called the Taboli where they um, the the sacred women they wake from a dream and they know that it's a message from the ancestors and so what they do is they take that dream and they weave it into the loom for about two months. So they're dream weavers right? and I, I knew I had to get back to that place. I had to reclaim this idea that I am just a conduit to the universe's whispers. That's what I'm going to do. And so I came up with a way of reclaiming my ability to be a storyteller. And I've been since teaching that to brown and black folks since. Okay, so and, and it's been very empowering. And because of that, okay, that idea that the universe is telling me something, it means that I can't deny that I'm a storyteller. It means that during the time like times that I've worked as an esthetician or a daycare worker or whatever I knew I was still a storyteller there were all these stories that were coming at me and I knew that it was just because at some point I was going to have to commit this to paper and um it's funny because, like, uh, you know, the Ottawa White Writers Fest. Um, I love them to death. Like, a lot of the people there are quite conservative. And I said the, they were like trying to describe. They were like, how do you how do you keep the writing going? I'm like, no, I, I can't make it stop. It feels like, I, and the way I said to them was, I feel like it's like holding in a pee. You can't hold in a pee and I, I thought it was a natural thing to say they thought it was hilarious they were like we've never heard of this holding in a pee <laughs> image before um, <laughs> and so uh, yeah but that's exactly what it feels like it's like if i deny what the universe is trying to tell me then i'm not going to i'm not going to be uh, i guess one of the universe's children so um in order to honor it, I, it means I have to, I, not I have to, because it never feels like a duty. I just write, and I write, and I write, just simply because the universe is telling me to. And so instead of it being like, am I gonna make money? Am I gonna do this? And the truth is instead, if you just really hold this idea that you are this magical child of the universe, it really helps you align with what the universe is trying to tell you. And the truer I was to my voice, the better. So. Bodies in Bad Times Theater, um, love them. So they just had the 40th anniversary just recently. And uh, the marketing guy was saying, like, listen, do you want to just be our thinker in residence? And I was like, that is a bullshit position of a thinker in residence. And they're like, well, just whatever you're thinking, you write it down, and then we'll pay you. I was like, what?
5: That's amazing.
2: And so I would write about what it's like being queer and a lot of people don't know what it's like to be queer with a kid and all of these things right like how complicated it is um, and uh, because of my perspective it really established wh- who I am as a writer is that I am a loud mouth, like irritable <laughs> um, subversive brown woman I am not palatable and like you know I'm not nice I'm not submissive, I'm not quiet. And be, because I found that voice, all of a sudden the universe is like, well then go, go girl, whatever you're gonna do, go and do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I felt very much in my body at that point. Um, that little switch, it was like, I'm meant to do this. I'm meant to just talk and speak my mind on behalf of a lot of people who can, you know? Yeah, but thank you for that question. I feel like you know, like that entire monologue could have been like, you know, go back, flash back to 1977, <laughs> and then you know, all of a sudden, like everyone's in afros. Um, yeah, that's right. CN Tower was just being built, and everyone was doing the hustle. Yeah, exactly. Any other thoughts, questions? Or even if, if like, for example, if you wanted to share something about the subject matter of crosshairs, I'm open to hearing that too. Yeah, being from Toronto,
8: first of all, well, thank you so much. That was I can't read. No um, being from
5: Toronto I love hearing um, just these Toronto moments like mm-hmm. going on Yonge Street which is the site of so many, you know, like the yes. proud greatest and so much marching yeah. and having
2: in there like singing Deborah Cox's song and she's yes. Canadian and, yes. so, and, the, and the Queen Mum even, yes. I thought that those were just like brilliant touches but made me also feel very at home despite it being um, very different communities within that. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is like, just imagining Toronto to have this shift, it's actually becoming easier and easier now with the way that the, um, like the political regime, mm-hmm. um, like that, like the, the feeling of it is, you know? Um, <coughs> so it, it there's a part of me that it's like, oh, it's difficult because we have this image in our head of Toronto being Toronto the good, right? And then this other image of it is like how easy it is for me to copy and paste from political speeches that are done in the last two years, mm-hmm. and adding word count to my to my book. Right. It's so frightening, right? right? Um. So and and not only that, they're, they're political speeches that are done here in Canada, not just in this. Right. Party. Right. That's what's so yes. horrifying, right? Yes. Um. So uh. Yeah, and you'll see. Um, yeah. Um, the. There is a speech done by a Prime Minister in the in the book where it's very similar to a particular Prime Minister talking about um, pipelines, but specifically about the changeover and why people are put into work camps. So yeah like things like that easy it's so easy you're making my work so easy right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting. and then i'm um, also so you <laughs> don't have to meet them though right what's what's interesting too is that with scarborough we're dealing with like a very specific community even specific to scarborough like the kingston galloway area whereas this one you see toronto in a very different light because um uh, do you all know about like this the word the use of syllabics for the homeless have you ever heard of this so in big cities Usually they'll tag something saying like, you know for example, um, these people in this house will offer you food mm-hmm. or um, this place has a, a, a good place for you to hide and, and not get beaten up or whatever, right? So in order for everyone to move from one part of the city to the other without um, being stopped at checkpoints, there's actually, I have to make a map of Toronto based on how the people are gonna be able to migrate from you know east, west, north and south Just using back alleys, because you know how Toronto is—is that we we can actually go through back alleys to get to places um, without anybody ever, without you ever needing to like cross a a major intersection, right? So um, I'm interested in doing that. I feel like it's going to be like this um, weird version of like you know how like with Lord of the Rings like you have—they usually have like the the, map—but it's going to be a much more like complicated Mm -hmm. map of Toronto. Yeah,
4: yeah. It could be interesting. Yeah. Yes dear. Uh two questions.
2: Sure. Um from Brampton, so it's Yay. I used, I used to live in Brampton
9: too. Yeah, you're just your energy's very funny.
2: Yeah. Um
9: <laughs> But the first question is, do you have to be a storyteller to tell stories? And the second one is how do you write openings? How do
2: I write openings? Ooh, you win, you win. Okay, can I just tell you? Okay, so Word on the Street last year, so Word on the Street is actually happening this weekend, and it was so hot. And I believe that because of the heat, everyone who came up to ask questions were asking the most offensive questions anybody could have asked, right? And Jen Egg was one of the fellow Toronto Book Award um, nominees. And she's a bit like, she's awesome. She's so aggressive and she's like a restaurateur in uh, Toronto, so you can imagine, she has to be a woman in that industry, right? So she's always like, she's so coarse, it's awesome. So um, one person mentioned that she was nothing but piss and vinegar. Like people were mean, were mean. For some reason, the last time I got up, okay, I was dehydrated, I was about to pass out. And this one guy comes up, and he finally asks a question that's amazing. And I take the microphone from him, and I said, listen to that. That was a great question. Anybody who asks a question from here on in has to either be equal or better than this guy. Or else I'm not answering, because I was so dehydrated. I just just couldn't care less anymore. I was like, I'm about to pass out. Who cares? It was just extremely hot. But anyways, yeah, today you win, my friend. Um, uh, So I don't Think you necessarily have to be a storyteller, like to be like named a storyteller to tell stories because of the fact that um, I feel that the storyteller is just the person that's going to be committing it somehow to either paper or an oral legacy, right? Whereas all of the stories that I have received so far, like they're just people who are just regular people telling me their most beautiful, their most Beautiful thoughts about things right Um, like I I can't tell you how many people have told me things that I've been completely ruined for like about a week thinking about their story and um, knowing that they've trusted me with it in order to share it with others right Um, so I just think it's more like storytellers are like the conduit to it and then the people who are telling the stories are like almost like these generous beings giving them these gifts yeah and then doing an opening those things are my favorite okay so um usually uh it comes in sort of uh, and when I when I mention this like please understand it's like I know I sound witchy whatever who cares um because people are like oh my gosh she's getting granola again um so with um openings usually there'll be an image that I don't quite understand um, so I'll give you an example. My last play is going to be, it's called Library, and it's a theater for a young audience's play. So it started with this image of a spotlight and this book sort of spinning through the air and then landing in the spotlight. And I was like, what is that image? So I'm not joking, like months go by and I'm like, what is that image? Just keeps on coming back. And I just trusted, the ancestors going to tell me what it's all about. And soon enough, I find two stories at the same time. One of them is about the Burro in um, Colombia. Do you know what this is? There's a guy in Colombia, he, um, he has a library on the back of his donkey. And the reason why he has it is that he's trying to teach kids literacy so that they choose a book instead of a gun. OK, so you know. um, uh, because of the entire child soldier situation in Colombia, right? Then there's an open-air library, so it's a, a storefront library in the Philippines, where this um, family uh, has hundreds of books that you can take and leave. And but there's no charge for it. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a library, but there's no, there's no signing in. You just take, you know, whatever, and you can keep it if you want, you can leave it if you want, whatever you want to do. So the idea is that these books are traveling between Colombia and the Philippines in order to give messages to these two librarians, these unlikely librarians, in order to teach children literacy. Um, so uh, that play now, it's been in uh, residence at Banff and at night swimming theater so i was really really happy to do that and hopefully it's going to be produced soon but that's how it starts it just starts like i wish i could tell you like well what i do is i take a walk and no, no there's nothing like that it's just like it comes and then i right, i think about it and then i figure out where it belongs it's almost like um you know you get this ugly ass sweater from your auntie and you're like mm, i don't know where it's going and then you realize that it goes with this pair of jeans that you've had this entire time that's horrible way to describe it. But that's, that's what beginnings of stories are like for me. I don't know. Everyone's like, that's a horrible description. Yeah.
7: I wonder um, who uh,
4: you would consider maybe your
7: influences or
2: who you uh, like to read or what plays you'd like to see or, you know, what you like, what you found helpful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so right now, my... Okay, hey, so we were just we were just talking about this. So did you see the short list for the Gillers? Um, so Essie Duggan. I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name correctly, but uh, right now I feel like framing every page of Washington Black. It is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And uh, but there'll be like a sentence that she said and it will completely ruin me. Um, like I'll be just like walking around like, how does she put that sentence together because I've never been to um, school for writing um, so I'm learning a lot from people like her I feel uh, really blessed to know that she's in this world and I haven't met her yet but I hope that I will soon um, uh, I would say like when it comes to cadence I'm hoping I, I aspire to be as good as ta Coates one day Um, Yeah, those two I would say are the, yeah. And when it comes to plays right now, to be quite honest with you, this is my final play because I don't feel that the ancestors feel like it's my art form anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes, my dear. I have a really pedestrian question for you. Oh gosh, oh, gosh, what is there like? Is there like a, what do you call it, like, I'm gonna yes, train your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: like, ding ding ding, <laughs> my goodness, um,
8: names seem so important in crosshairs, and, and yes. if I'm correct, Bahadur means warrior, and it sounds like Bahadur has to be a warrior to survive yes. that world, and questions of people naming themselves, or being rudely renamed by the Queen
2: Mum. Yes! yes. That's, you know what, it's such a, I'm so glad that you're catching that. Um, so my partner is Navajo, um, and uh, their name is Nazba. Um, They're trans masculine and their name means uh, one who goes to war and I wanted to find a similar name in Persian to represent them. Um, Then when it came to uh, K, so there's actually an entire thing because I find that naming in the queer community to me is one of those things that makes me cry. It's such a beautiful thing, like the act of someone saying, this is my name and this is my identity. I find it's, it's, it, it really makes me cry. There's so many things that make me cry about being queer. Like I, I cry at like um, you know chest surgery when people are getting chest surgery and people um, uh, do fundraisers I I cry like a baby at the trans march I cry like a baby when I hear one of my our trans kin when their voice changes when they start to transition I bawl. I feel like I'm like a mother hearing my my child's voice change you know like it, it just it feels incredible. Um, so uh, with Kay, you, uh, there's an entire part about how Kay is named. And after there is an exorcism, um, he is made to wander the streets with his head shaven, his nails cut, everything. Like he's, he's been, um, it, it's such a horrible, horrible act um, of violence against him. And his friend Nadine takes him in um, like, forges a note for him to leave school and has him stay at her apartment. And up in the apartment, she takes a bird's nest, makes it into a crown, and she says, What do you want your name to be? He never had been asked that because he was named after his father. And he says, Because uh, his name is Keith. He says, Well, I don't know. And she says, Well, what about this? What about if it was like K? So K is in the first letter of your name, but K like a girl and he says, okay, she goes, then I, I, I crown you Queen K. And it's this beautiful moment, and then Sullied. By um, the drag queens later on because of the fact that all the makeup, if we all know, all the racialized folks in this room know, is that when you're trying to find makeup for yourself, it's always named after like freaking food. So like, oh it's like cappuccino powder and um, chocolate caramel, blah, 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 blah. like okay, so it's always like it's if we're gonna be eaten, you know, and it's like you know, like because we're basically we're consumable. No,
5: that yeah. Absolutely unspeakable pizza joke. Exactly right,
2: and so the entire thing about like caramel K—it's actually this imposed name of like imagining that he's he's edible, you Um, know—and so I want to explore it just because it's it really does explore like all. I had to make a list of all of the microaggressions that we experience on a regular, and one of them is buying makeup. I hate I hate like um, there's this uh, family where the um, husband is white, the um, wife is Filipina, and he, the, the father keeps on calling the son my little vanilla bean, and I was like, why do you all call him vanilla beans? Because he's that, you know, that soft, creamy color. Because he's mixed. I I can't tell you how much anger I have about like the use of food to connect it to like describing us as racialized people. It just makes me really really angry. And so yeah, so that entire um, you'll see that in the book like all of these ways in which like you know d- dealing with that list of microaggressions that I deal with every day, um, it, it's 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 really fit in there every now and then. You know, and that's one of them is definitely food and naming. Mm-hmm. You. You're welcome. You so You're welcome.
3: Um, um great talk, great talk. I, uh, can I share a story with you? Absolutely, please. Everything has, the third conversation has led up to this and I keep thinking about talking to you about this right and right now as we transition into this conversation about the, the use of food and the use of, of, of names. I wanted to. I think you're the best person to ask something I've been wondering about for two weeks. So I drove my son off to school for a day of school, and uh, his father's French Canadian. So the two of us are there. I reach out to say hello to the teacher, and she says, "Oh, sure. I, I guess I, sh- I will shake your hand." and then asks me, have you been here with another family? And I go, I'm sorry. And she goes, yes, I know you from somewhere. Yes, you look exactly like myself's living caregiver. And I go, okay. Your face, yes, the shape of your face, your bone structure, your height, your hair, yes, everything is exactly like, yes, you resemble so much. And I didn't know how to react, how to make it stop, how to, what to say. Yeah. And it took this person the person who's going to be teaching my son for a year to uh, allow three four days to realize that I was his mother. I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. And I keep thinking, what would have been a good response to that? How would I make it stop? And I thought, if this was a story, yeah, what would your character do?
2: Yeah. And I'm sorry to a question oh, no, no, <laughs> okay. And I'm sorry that that has even happened to you, uh, to be honest with anyone, if those things happen, because it's taking me a while. What do I do? What do I do? Because also, just think about how much time you spend thinking about what your response is, right? When you could have just been doing your nails or eating chocolate or whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> it's like, like, what I do is I go dead in my body and I turn around. It could, they could be a mid-sentence. I don't even give them the time. Mm-hmm. I go dead in my body so that they do not receive one calorie of my effort. And that seems to give them the message. But um, before I did that, something similar happened to me. So I had a whole bunch of kids with me from my home daycare. And my daughter said, um, Mom, we're having a Christmas concert. But just FYI, we're doing the Huron Carol. So it's going to be bullshit. <laughs> and I said, OK, I get it. I get it. So we'll go. We go there. And she was in at that time, because she's in a gifted program. And it was in a very moneyed area in Toronto. Um, I get there. And as soon as I walked through the door, this little kid um, from her school looks at me. She goes, you look exactly like my Filipina nanny. I, I went down. so I was right at eye level, and I said, I probably look nothing like your nanny, but whatever. And, it was like, and I thought, I hope this kid remembers this moment for the rest of their lives. Um, just because, like you know, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a moment where I could. I felt safe enough to put this kid in their place, and I don't care about their feelings. Um, but it's. it's uh, but there are times where I'm like, no, I'd rather eat fried chicken. I'd rather go home and watch Netflix rather than. Um, Uh, give them my energy, so then I just, I I sincerely, I go, like, I go dead in my eyes, everything, and I turn around, and I walk away, and I I usually, it's, like, mid-sentence, like, I remember one person saying, um, are you, what are you? Are you Native? Are, I've never seen a Native so dark, so I didn't want to explain, it's like, no, my Partners indigenous, like I didn't want to do all this entire thing, right? It's like, and also, uh, yeah, we're just from a farming community in the Philippines. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to go through all this, it's not our freaking business. So, again, dead eyes turning around, excuse me,
1: Oh,
5: what? oh are you are you native?
2: No, I, I have nothing, I have nothing to give her. Mm-hmm. Went, had a nice drink, blah blah blah. You know, I can go on with my life, it feels great, it feels really great to just. Just completely just disengage. Now there is also a satisfaction to being like, actually, that's not, you know, what I'm telling you is you know, it feels great to to do that too. And you can make a decision as to what you feel is the best use of your energy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not that you know that usual thing is like, oh just brush it off, it doesn't even matter, you know that 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 mm-hmm. kind of advice. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's your energy. You have absolute right to your body. And you decide what you want to do with it. You're welcome. I'm sorry. Yeah, no.
0: And you just heard, as introduced by Carolyn Smart, uh, the fall term writer-in-residence at Queens, uh, and it was the September 21st introduction, I should say, of Carolyn Hernandez as the fall term writer-in-residence at Queens. That was in Watson Hall, again, September 21st, uh, and and the full hour was devoted to that reading and discussion, and... uh, carried over into this hour just a few minutes as i mentioned it would and so i hope you enjoyed that it was a wonderful afternoon uh what i would need to do is this and then i will be right back uh, to introduce this second hour
7: Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on CFRC.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at CFRC.ca. Friday evenings at
6: 6 p.m. here on CFRC. Listen to Saltwater Music a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. I'm David Suzuki. The average lunch or dinner travels 2,400 kilometers to get to your table. Eating local means combating global warming. The future is on your table.
4: Eat your way to a healthier planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org.
8: Do you like waffles? Do you like waffles on a Saturday morning?
7: Do you like things that are good and dislike things that are bad?
8: Then you should listen to Waffles.
6: Every Saturday morning on CFRC 101.9 FM from 8 a.m. until 10 a.m.
9: Everybody likes waffles.
6: And
0: I do want to thank you for having tuned in in the first hour of today's show. You, uh are listening uh, to Finding a Voice. And uh, as I usually do at the end of each hour, and we'll do it for this piece as well, uh, the full hour was done uh, devoted to the welcome and introduction of Catherine Hernandez as the fall term writer-in-residence at Queens. Uh, each hour of uh, the show, each week, uh, including today's, will be uploaded to my blo- blog space for it shortly after I get home. Uh, This evening, and that uh, can be found at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. So now I'd like to welcome you uh, into it uh, to the second hour of today's show. It's about 5.06, and you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located in Lower Crothers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.com. Dot ca. So coming up uh, for the remainder of uh, this second hour of today's show, uh, just as I mentioned at the top of the show, at just after 4 o'clock, uh, trying to catch up a bit uh, with some open mic readings and work a few of them in uh, between uh, the number of readings and launches that have been happening this month and will continue in October. And I hope to have just a few minutes at the end of the hour to at least Uh, share with you the ones that are coming up the most quickly there are also a couple of calls expiring as well in the coming weeks so i want to mention those as well but uh, this afternoon as we try to catch up on the open mic readings you'll hear the final three readings in the august 7th and the journey continues open mic event with readings by eric folsom joshua schiff and, uh, and me. And then uh, we begin, uh, I'll have time to begin the September readings, three of those as well, uh, in that same series. And uh, you'll hear readings by Gwen uh, Whitford, Alyssa Cooper, and Jamie Pfeiffer. And, as I did in the first hour, this usual hourly announcement that occasionally some poetry spoken word or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played it in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So, up first, as we begin to conclude the August seventh and the journey continues open mic readings uh in that monthly series, here is. Eric Folsom.
10: Up there, Eric Folsom. Let's bring him up.
4: Hello. Um, I brought two pieces. Uh, the first is another highly inaccurate translation of John Cocteau uh, from the. Uh, uh, the series, uh, Cryptographies, uh, this is the fourth book, uh, it's titled in French, um, and this is what I did to it. The necessary nights the canal locks would fill, breaking up the spillways, tracking the muses, stripping the nine clean, breathing curses until... They forget altogether their classical poses. I shall behave calmly when it's finally their turn to be catapulted blindly to the light, snarling at each other while the bridges burn. Faces red like torches, manes flaring bright. I shall live calmly when I finally see that clopping white horse deploying each wing, while the stubborn nine sisters, unable to agree, lurked out old secrets in their hurry to stain. Um And this is a, a poem that I've been poking at for about six months. Called, uh, it's, it's called The Sunken City. Um, some of us remember when the queer songbook orchestra was in town. Ellison um, and L.J. Murph on stage, and they were wonderful. Tip of the hat. Um, so uh, since seeing that uh, the performance, uh, I kept thinking, like, OK, what song would I want to see on stage? What would I want to hear them do? And what story would I put together about that? So I'm uh, going back to um, the uh, Vancouver singer-songwriter named Farron. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Yes. Farron? Okay, Um, who was big in the 80s and the 90s, actually 70s, 80s and 90s, and in 1990, 91, a big label put together, um, well-produced, you know, lots of orchestrations of the songs called The Phantom City. And I love the album. Nobody listens to it anymore. (laughs) So this is my story about Farron and the Sunken City. Elk. Early fall of 1991 and I am driving alone from Ontario to Massachusetts in a rusty, capricious Chevrolet caprice with a stack of music cassettes for company. The latest album by Farron, Phantom Center, fills the tape slot in the dashboard over and over. Beautiful and butch, Farron from British Columbia singing gentle and deep, with dark hidden currents like the St. Lawrence River under the bridge that I'm crossing over while she catches my mood. To be what you are, that's one thing. To be what you want now, that's something else. My voice suddenly cracks. I'm on the verge of crying as the U.S. border guard asks me the purpose of my visit and I stammer an explanation. My father is critical in the ICU at Leahy. We don't know how long he's going to last. I want to see him before he dies, and the guard waves me through, through the crossing before I dissolve completely. My stepmother phoned last night in the middle of my wife's birthday party to tell us about the stroke, about the ambulance, about the doctors doing everything they can. By morning, I'm flying down the highway, a quick breakfast, McDonald's beside Fort Drum, Pushing this huge array of feelings down the road, my baggage, the alcoholic father, the small town that called me faggot, the normative world with no apparent room for me. But Farron sings the map of the sky as a place for you. Farron understands. I'm clutching the wheel and crying. She's metaphorically holding my hand, and she realizes how easily you can feel sorry for yourself while driving 500 miles to see the man who bullied you, the man who loved you and found you incomprehensible. You, the thing, long-haired, peacenick living in Canada. I'm driving away from my marriage, too, but nobody knows it yet. The weeks of separation will start the slow motion, collapse, driven by disaffection, dysphoria, my internalized biphobia, the life where I loved everyone but myself, missing the necessary words that could describe me. But Farron holds me up, so I play the tape again. There's wreckage in the rear view and a wreckage ahead. Never mind, she tells me. Let's go in search of the sunken city. And she sings, it's the future and it's leading us whole. She says, let's go on a hunch and give this a name. Could the name be bisexual even though I love a woman? Could the people who call me fairy and pansy be right? The people who told me I'm not strong enough, not straight enough, insufficiently masculine, just too sensitive? Farron just repeats the chorus again. To be what you want is one thing. To be what you want? That's something else.
10: Very fulsome, let's give him another hand.
0: And you just heard Eric Folsom's reading in the August 7th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series again, held at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it, uh, here is Joshua Schiff. Hi, guys. This one's called Herky
6: Symphony. <clears throat> My heartbeats for you, for me, my heartbeats to our symphony. Our heartbeats took their time, learning a rhythm and a rhyme. Before our hearts created our song, a melody that lasts forever long. At thirst, it was subtle the way that he grew. Our eyes danced, and then our lips too. As our heartbeats played a harmonic tune, our heartbeats sang the lyrics we both knew. I love you. Our heartbeats were fast at first, adding, will you marry me, to a verse. Before we knew it, a third heartbeat was born. Pretty soon, a band had been formed. Our families, our biggest fans, watching over years, all of us jam, our children turning into women and men. Find themselves partners who understand. Our heartbeat's tempo begins to slow. With each groupie, we let go. Our heartbeats, Reaching the end of our song, memories of our duet through our children live on. Our heartbeats go on for just one more, our last moment, our lost encore. As our heartbeats fade away, to each other we say, My heart beats for you, for me, my heart beats to our symphony. this one is called, Small Steps. Hello world, so bright and so loud. Only my own cries can muffle out your sound. I thought I heard a familiar voice, but a beeping noise is resound. I cry more to be with them. I hear, honey, I'm so proud. We're losing her, is blast past the beeping sound. It's cold at first, then I'm wrapped in something warm and placed on soft ground. In the distance now, this long beep noise won't turn off. Pretty soon the sound is gone, I am being strolled off. Beep, beep, beep is all I hear now, poor deer whispered in my ear. You're not the voice that was once so familiar and near. I am six months old now. I follow my mommy and daddy everywhere. I take crawling steps towards them, their arms open passionate glares. I, however, am in my underwear. We go on drives and walks. Daddy's the one that mostly talks. I try to talk and say how I feel. It doesn't always—he doesn't always understand my skills. We do everything together: bath, play, sleep, even fart. Daddy takes me to bed when it gets dark. He lays me on his chest where I can hear his heart. Sometimes, Daddy's water comes out before we turn off the light. Mommy lays beside us, cuddling Daddy and I tell She dries Daddy's cheeks and smiles at me. I smile back, then fall back to sleep. Six months pass by. I'm beginning to say, Mommy. Daddy smiles with red eyes. I can also say hungry. I get to eat Daddy's food, more solid and new. Sometimes I spit food out. I don't like the taste or don't want to chew. Mommy and Daddy both grab my hands. They say, small steps, when I can barely stand. I swing my leg forward toward mommy. then thrust the other forward. It's the first time I see mommy cry. I begin to cry too. Each small step I take, I almost fall, but she catches him through. Mommy begins to dissipate. She whispers, small steps. I start smiling and laughing, that familiar voice that I had left. Daddy's still before me, smiling, arms open, also starting to cry. I start my I take my small steps towards him and wipe the tears from his eyes. I say, Mommy's here. Daddy looks at me and sighs. Mommy is always here, as he points towards my chest. Just remember, mommy used to always say, take small steps. And just one last one, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Um, This one is called I Dream. Um, I'll do a little explanation afterwards. Uh, In my dreams, my wishes come true. In my dreams, I am close to you. I close my eyes and you are there. Smiling thriving each moment we share in my dreams. We have no care in my dreams into your eyes. I stare In my dreams we kiss and reminisce in my dreams. We are bliss Although I do not know who you are you are in my every dream shining through like a star You say I'm yours in your mind, but that we have run out of time. I Do not know what is real my mind is tired. I want to feel This woman inside my every dream, the memories that play like a movie scene. I know her face, I don't know her name. I yell, I'm sick of playing this guessing game. We both awake, I begin to cry. She wipes my tears from my eyes. She calms me down and I subside. Her voice is real, I feel alive. Her name I call, she answers with ease. She tells me, it's time to go back to sleep. I lay down as she smiles at me. I finally remember this woman next to me. I am going to sleep once again. I dream. But who is this lady I keep seeing? Uh So, uh, Alzheimer's runs my family. Uh, Essentially, that's uh, what that's about. Thank you so much for your time, guys.
10: Joshua.
0: Let's give him another hand. And you just heard Joshua Schiff's reading in the August 7th. Uh, and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series again held at the Elm Cafe. And up next in it, and the final read it from it, is my reading uh, that evening. So here we go.
10: I've got just a really short reading. Before I read tonight, we've heard some wonderful poetry. Let's give yourselves and everybody else a hand. First poem is called Adding On or Two. Additional numbers of anything all more insignificant than the first. This is called on sound. There is a sound of air. No, not the air. Not in the air, but instead of the air itself. It is the softest of low-pitched sound, musical. But while below any scale we know, the lowest of sound before note, the feel of air as it touches your skin. And again, know not the breeze or wind or temperature or humidity, the feel, the texture of how air rests on your flesh. On the calmest of a fresh air day. It's a texture softer than the finest of silk, as it slowly slides over your skin, washes itself around, wraps and envelops, and it too as alive and as forgiving and feeling much like breath. It's called The Curtain of Light. The glare of suns, the glitter of stars, even the transparency of night hide the other galaxies and all their planets and moons in their endless spin as much as flesh, all flesh, hides the celebrations and battles beneath within and I'm going to cut the last one so this is going to be my last poem thank you all again for coming out and your wonderful readings this evening it's called Someday Someday when the flesh remembers dust again becomes it And the water within, beneath, remembers another place and wanders there. And in that time, motion will forget itself and become but memory and shadows left. Thanks.
0: And that was my reading at uh, August 7th, and the journey continues uh, open-mic reading in that monthly series. Tell you what, before we move into the September ones, uh, probably should do this again, and I'll be right back. Folk Everything, every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC.
3: Says red Molly to James, that's a fine motorbike. I
6: mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, it means that people can get daily, every day a different way of looking at the world not just what the corporate media want you to see but a different picture different understanding a different picture a different understanding not only can you just hear it but you can participate in it you can add your own thoughts you know and you can learn something and so on well that's the way uh, well that's the way uh, well that's the way uh, people become uh, human you know that's the way you become human participants in a in a social and political system.
2: Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let the hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays, only on CFRC 101.9 FM.
7: The Youth Diversion Program is a charitable organization which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior, to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives, and at the same time, take responsibility for their actions. For further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com.
0: And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. Here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Now we're going to go ahead and move up. Uh, We'll get three readings from this end this afternoon. Uh, From the September 4th, uh, the next one of those, and the journey continues, uh, open mic readings in that monthly series, Uh, again held at the Elm Cafe. Up first in that uh, session, here is Gwen Whitford. Again, thank you all for coming out. Up first, here is Gwen Whitford. Let's bring her up.
9: hot, hot, hot. I don't know if you agree or not, but I'm going to express my sentiments about it in two poems. Hot stones, cool shades. Shimmering stones scorch sit bones until late afternoon when verdant boughs shelter and soothe those who seek some shade. Twinkling Starry northern nights, stillness in the streets, shattered by cat shrieks, drunken squeals, and much later, siren screams. Welcome daybreak. Heavenly blues and cottony whites fade into fiery orange as the temperature soars. Long, languorous, lazy hours spent languishing by the bay, but only in the season of hot stones and cool shades. Summer cold, heavy, humid, sultry days, streaming sweat, lethargy prevails, sweltering heat bouncing off asphalt and concrete, no reprieve without AC until darkening days and barren trees usher in the season of bleak. Dreary, freezing, constant chill segue into the shortest month when dreams defy logic with escapes to southern climes where a taste of insufferable summer is deemed perfectly fine. Thank you.
10: That's Gwen Whitford. Let's give her another
0: hand. Yeah, and you just heard Gwen Whitford's reading in the September 4th, and the journey continues monthly, uh, open mic reading, I should say, in that monthly series. Up next from it, here is Alyssa Cooper. Up next, Alyssa Cooper. Let's bring her up.
5: Uh, So I'm going to read a newer piece I've been working on this week. I'm planning on including it in my set list at the 100,000 Poets for Change event. Um, And my thing lately seems to be longer poems told in multiple parts. So longer poem in multiple parts. This one's called Hornets, Bees, and Other Things That Sting. One. Ancient man thrusts his fist through paper walls. He is wet at the mouth, all tooth and claw, trusting in some unspoken instinct that promises sweetness on the other side. He barely feels the stings, barely sees the warriors falling dead at his feet. He tears through honeycomb to find liquid gold, and he is willing to drown in the flow. Later, when he sucks the stingers from his swollen flesh, they will taste sweet, too. Summer sticky in the autumn night, I watch the people two floors up flit cigarette butts over the balcony banisters. The embers streak across velvet sky like fireflies, like shooting stars, and alone in the dark I make wishes. Let them lift the fire ban. Let us decay gracefully. Let us not burn in the coming end. Three, the day crowd at the pub is quiet. The single TV plays silent, the pint sleeve rings on mahogany bar, a blur of yellow batters the window above my booth. He beats himself against the glass, not stupid or stubborn, only alone and confused. There is nothing so transparent in his world. How is he to know how windows work? How is he to understand any feeling more complex than this desperate need for escape? leg-down, friendly bartender. He is tall and loud, stretched long like taffy and just as sweet. And when I ask for an empty cup and a coaster, he brings them to me. He watches me kick off my shoes to stand on his booth, both arms above my head in supplication. He tells me it's a hornet, you know. As if he thinks he can coax me back into my seat. Four. Halfway down this street, The names change. Same green lawn, same gray pavement, but with a single step, you wind up someplace different. No flashing lights, no waving flag, just a small green sign on a weather-worn pole that warns this is where the street splits. On one side is home, and on the other is oblivion, and you best choose wisely, because round here, we don't backtrack. Five. It's a hornet, he says. It's not a bee, as if the only lives worth saving are those that are useful to me, as if a life can only be measured by that which it provides, but imagine the death he will die if I leave him here. The lonely starvation of a man deserted. Imagine the hours he will spend at this window, shipwrecked, eyeing a freedom impossible to reach. Imagine the baking. Imagine the burning. Imagine the slow crawl of time. And then the hornet is in the cup, and for all his trepidation, when I slide coaster between glass and glass, the kind bartender smiles. You've done this before, he says. As I carry the cup to the door, I send my castaway home, and he is gone in an instant, in an indignant buzz of transparent wings, no fairy tale finish, no balance paid, just an insect. Doing what it is that insects do best. Back at my table, the taffy-sweet bartender brings me a drink that he will not add to my bill. He takes away the cup, but he leaves me the coaster, a reminder, a trophy, a memento, and he smiles. Six. You are eight years old, and the bumblebee is drunk on the strawberry stink of your conditioner. That aeronautical impossibility, wings too small to fly, he flies just fine, it's the landing. That's the problem. The wind keeps moving his morning glory, not purple like the ones that your father grows, not the size of your hand, but small and pale. And the bumblebee dips and weaves, trapped in an exhausting dance with a partner that just won't stand still. And so you steady the vine for him. He lands, he folds his cellophane wings, and he drinks. You can see his stinger through the fur, a single threatening point of light. It was a bee like this one that stung your mother, made her scream and cry, left a lump beneath her arm, the size and color of an overripe fig. And you hold the vine, and you are not afraid. Thank you.
10: Was Alyssa Cooper? Let's give
0: her another hand. Yeah, and you just heard Alyssa Cooper and her reading at the September six, uh, fourth. I'm sorry, and the journey continues. Uh, open mic reading. In that monthly series, and up next in it, and will probably be, in fact, will be my uh, the last poet I air this afternoon, so I can uh, share a few events and calls for submissions. Here is Jamie Piper. Up next, Jamie Piper. Let's bring them up.
8: Good evening, everyone. I'll be reading a snippet from my novel called Withstanding the Fiery Furnace. It is based on a true story that takes place during the Russian Revolution, the year 1919. At the beginning of October, after being under the rule of anarchists for a month, we heard a lot of gunfire and soldiers shouting at each other. It lasted all day and night. When morning came, there was a knock on our door. My brother put a finger to his lips and moved like a cat across the room. Who is it? The White Army, sir. Can you open your door? John opened the door and smiled at the officer. Good morning, sir. You are a blessed sight. I thought you were one of those anarchists. The officer chuckled and said no, but we have good news. We were able to chase the anarchists out of the city. Hearing this, our families crowded around the officer and shook his hand, thanking him. We are free at last. I hugged my brother and my family. Maria said to me, let's find out if Peter and Johnny are still alive. Please, Father, beg my children? Fine, let's go. I turned to Mrs. Yefremov and asked, do you want to come with us to see if we can find your husband and your son? Yes, thank you, asked Mrs. Yefremov. Her eyes were puffy as if she had been crying all night. Before we left, my daughter Catherine spoke up father and mother, I'll stay back and look after Abe. Yes, please do, I said, while ruffling Abe's hair as he grinned at me. With him being ten years old, I wanted to protect his childlike nature as much as possible. The rest of my family and I walked down a few streets, and I shuddered, seeing the dead bodies of soldiers. However, the sight was nothing compared to what we saw once we reached the pier. The smell of the scene, mixed with rotting flesh, filled my nostrils as I gagged from the smell. It was a grisly sight as bodies littered the sands on the beach, unrecognizable because their faces were hacked off. Based on their clothing, it was a mixture of soldiers and civilians, men, women, and children. Flies swarmed the bodies as rodents and small creatures such as foxes gorged on the flesh, seeing as they scurried away in the underbrush. Every time the waves receded from the shore, it left deposits of flesh and we could see swarms of fish feasting on it. Oh, Jacob, breathed Maria with her voice wavering. What if Peter and Johnny? Maria, don't think like that. There is hope until we hear otherwise. Let's go find them. Jake, Mary, and George asked around to see if anyone has seen Peter and Johnny. They were in the midst of this battle. Your mother and I are going with Mrs. Yakimov to look for her husband and son. They nodded and we went our separate ways. We trudged amongst the bodies with flies swarming around our heads and stepped amidst blood and flesh. There was no clear way to avoid walking through that. My wife put an arm around Mrs. Yefremov and comforted her as we looked at each body. We were looking for about an hour when I heard Mrs. Yefremov scream. She collapsed to her knees by a body of a teenage boy, flies buzzing all around disturbed by this alien presence. His hair was short and black, slipped with blood, but his face. I threw up to the side as the sight and smell of all these bodies overwhelmed me. The boy's face was shorn off as if it was hacked by an ax or a sharp weapon. His body was covered in wounds and bruises. The only piece of clothing on him was his underwear that looked like it was woven by hand. Rhea asked Mrs. up in a gentle voice, how do you know this is your son? Through her sobs, I was able to make out a few words, his hair, and I sew all of his clothing. I would recognize my work anywhere, she said, while fingering her stitch pattern on her son's underwear. She wailed as she pulled her son onto her lap and rocked him back and forth. After a few minutes, my sister-in-law Kathy placed a hand on Mrs. Yefremaw's shoulder and whispered something into her ear. She nodded and with the help of Kathy, she rose to her feet. Kathy put an arm around her shoulders and led her back to the house. I pulled Maria into my arms and held her as her body shook with tears streaming down her face. I can't handle this anymore, Jacob. Why do men do this to each other, murdering innocent lives? It's cold-blooded murder. Who do these men think they are? Don't they have a shred of goodness inside of them? I stroked my wife's head, hair, and said, Shh, it's going to be all right. Look, our children are coming over. "'Hopefully they'll have some good news for us.' "'George, Jake, and Mary came towards us. "'George stepped forward with my two children behind him and said, "'We talked to one of the colonels. "'He didn't see Peter, so we have no news of him. "'However... "'No, please,' Maria said, pleading. "'George straightened his shoulders. "'Johnny was shot in the back, and the bullet is lodged near his heart. "'One centimeter over, and he would have died.' They are still trying to keep him alive, but they don't have the means to take the bullet out. Maria gave a small cry, and Mary held her mother's hand. I turned towards my wife. He is still alive, Maria. We can pray that he survives the surgery. Right now, let's be thankful our sons are still alive. Can we go visit him, Maria asked George. Unfortunately, no. One, they are still doing surgery, and who knows how long it'll be until he recovers. And two, it's too dangerous to find him with armies conquering for power over Russia. I turned to my son. Thank you for finding this out. We had a difficult day. Let's head back to my brother's house. Thank you for listening.
10: That was Jamie Piper. Let's give another hand.
0: And you just heard Jamie Pfeiffer's reading at the September 4th, and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series out at the Elm Cafe. And again, the last reading I'll air this afternoon. Uh, there are a number of events uh, coming up quickly and throughout the month that I'd like to at least get partway through, and also two calls uh, for either submissions or participation or notification uh, that are coming up uh, within the next week. So I will probably do those first, but I do have two more of these, and then as soon as these are I'll be right back and uh, start to do all of that. The
7: Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance Widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136.
1: Walk Home is one of the services provided to you by the Alma Mater Society at Queen's University. Walk Home is a completely confidential and anonymous service where students will pick you up and walk you to any location within our extensive boundaries. We are located in the Lower Cayley of the John Deutsch University Centre. You can request a walk by dropping by the kiosk or by calling 613-533-9255 during our hours of operation. We are open every night from dusk till 2am, Sunday to Wednesday, or till 3am from Thursday to Saturday. During exam season, we are open until 4am. Last year, we completed over 10,000 walks, walking the equivalent distance of crossing the width of Canada and back. So whether you're feeling unsafe, want someone to walk with after a night at the library, or feel more comfortable walking downtown with someone, call Walk Home. If you have any questions about the service, please feel free to contact us by calling 613-533-9255 or by emailing walkhome at ams.queensgroup.ca.
0: And again, you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And you just heard her in the uh, heard heard them in the first hour of the show today. Uh, Catherine Hernandez uh, is the new 2018 fall term writer in residence at Queens, and so just a brief announcement about them. Uh, we'll be on campus on Fridays uh, for the full term, and uh, we'll be meeting uh, with students at uh, Queens and also the wider Kingston community as well. If you'd like to make an appointment to, to discuss your writing, please contact her in advance at theloudlady@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Again, that will be, um, I don't know where the uh, meetings will be held or if it's all done online, but uh, if it is, it will probably be in Watson Hall. But again, uh to she will line all that up. Uh, contact uh, Catherine, if you're interested, at uh, the loud lady at gmail.com. And uh, quickly approaching uh, calls uh, that are going to expire. Uh, for emerging artists, uh, the Nan uh Grant for uh, Artistic Development aims to help uh, young promising artists and or artisans working in visual media to further their artistic growth and education totaling $2,500 in value and awarded annually to one individual. Uh, The grant is intended for training or focus creation. Uh, It says that applications are assessed by peer jury based on the eligibility of the proposal and the artistic merit of the applicant. Uh, the grant is made possible through an endowment fund administered by the Community Founta- Foundation for Kingston and Area with the uh, selection process administered by the Kingston Arts Council. If you're interested, uh, I would suggest you go to www.artskingston.ca uh, slash uh, N-A-N uh, dash Y-E-O-M-A-N-S dash grant dash four, dash artistic, dash development. Uh, I'm guessing if you go to the main page, you might just find it there. So www.artskingston.ca, and then uh, look for the Nan Yomans grant. Uh, another one that will be expiring. This, oh, that does expire, if I didn't say it, on October 12th, so quickly approaching. Uh, the uh, next one that is expiring this coming week is the um, for new and emerging poets. It's Guernica Editions has announced the launch of its diversity focused uh, poet mentorship program. This is for emerging poets who have not yet published a full. Uh, full-length collection of poems and uh, i'm also reading from their website as well the aim uh, of uh, this program is to provide a mentorship opportunity to talented writers from historically marginalized communities two poets will be selected for a three-month mentorship program with award-winning poet and teacher edward c corral uh, along with the mentorship, uh, the chosen mentees will have the opportunity to publish a full length collection with Guernica at a later date. Must be Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Again, that is uh, excerpted uh, from their web post. Deadline October 14th, www.guernicaeditions.com slash poet mentorship, all one word. So uh, there you go for full details. Uh, another one that's coming up. Let's see how much time do I have here. I think I might have time for this. Uh, there is one more. Well, let me do two more because one expires October 31st. So I was going to do the end of the month, but then I see another one for November 1st. So here we go. Uh, the 2019 CBC short Story Prize is open for submissions. Uh, Canadian writers must submit original unpublished short stories have until again October 31st can be the stories can be up to 2500 words in length. Uh, The winner will receive $6,000 from the Canada Council for the Arts, attend a two-week writing residency at the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity, and have their story published on CBC Books. Four finalists also will win $1,000 from Canada Council for the Art and have their story published uh, on CBC Books as well. There is a submission fee of $25. Again, the deadline, October 31st at just before one minute to two midnight. Uh, there is a huge, long website here. I'm just going to tell you to go to uh, CB, uh, www.cbc.ca slash books and slash literary prizes and from there i'm sure you can uh, manage uh, that page to find the link that you need uh the next uh, the last one i'm going to read has a deadline of november 1st so the following day it's a call for submissions for young buck uh, it's called the young buck poetry prize Uh, cvc I'm sorry, CVC. CV2 Magazine has created a new annual poetry contest exclusively for writers under the age of 35. Uh, And it's called the Young Buck Poetry Prize and is awarded to the author of the single best submitted poem along with $1,000 and publication in CV2. Uh, Two honorable mentions are also awarded each a a cash prize. Uh, www.contemporaryverse2.ca and uh, look for contests. And then you'll find Young Buck Poetry Prize there as well. So, with, uh, there are a number of other uh, calls uh, that are out there, uh, but they don't expire until later, so I'm going to. Uh, Save those only because we have a number of upcoming events that are going to expire very quickly. If you count the one uh, tomorrow, uh, there are four uh, book launches uh, coming up at Novel Idea between now and next Friday, so in the next seven days. First one, book launch and reading, and let me see about that. This is just a book launch and signing, I believe. Uh, Kingston author Catherine Prairie uh, will be at Novel Idea Bookstore for, yes, a Kingston book signing event. Excuse me. The book is the newest Alex Graham thriller called Blue Fire. And that will be tomorrow uh saturday october 6th from noon to 3 p.m novel idea book stores on the corner of princess and uh, Baggett street and uh it's address if you don't know i think just about everybody knows where it is 156 princess street excuse me i have to cough again sorry about that i'm getting over a cold hopefully so that is tomorrow uh, from noon to 3 at Novel Idea. Then coming up uh, next Tuesday night, Tuesday, October 9th, uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., uh, double book launch and reading. Uh, local poet-author Jason Hero uh, will be reading. Uh, the guest reader that evening uh, with him will be uh, Abina Beloved Green, who is a spoken word uh artist and performance artist will be reading from and launching her debut collection of poetry called the way we hold on and uh neil Sirkan uh will be uh launching and reading from his uh, debut full poetry collection called on high and uh that will be again Tuesday, October 9th, 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, there is a Facebook event notice for it if you just uh, search Double Launch and Reading Novel Idea. Uh, and uh, either Sir can or Green, either of those words should take you right there. You can also uh, find it on uh, Novel Ideas, uh, on Novel Idea Bookstore's Facebook page as well. The following night, uh, Wednesday, October 10th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Erica Berish Elsie, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that name right, my apologize, who is the Associate Dean of Arts and Associate Professor in the English Department at RMC, will be launching and reading from her book of historical fiction. And it's called Lady Franklin of Russell Square. Again, that's Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, October 10th, 7 to 9 p.m. And uh, then on Thursday, it will be an- another double book launch and reading uh, with uh, John Donlan and Miriam Claver. Uh, they will both launch their latest books at Novel Idea, again, Thursday, November 11th, again, 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, John will be launching his new book of poetry called Out All Day. And Miriam uh, launching her new book of fiction called Fate Accompl- uh, Accompli, uh, Murder in Quebec City. Uh, that is Thursday the 11th. And then we're moving into, and I'm going to run out of time, so I'll have to save these till next week, but they get you through this next week. But the week after that, it looks like we've got... Four more events, uh, so I will be sure and share those next week as well. What I want to do is thank you for tuning in uh, today. You've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, located Lower Crothers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name's Bruce, here every Friday from 4 to 6 o'clock. Streaming live online, www.cfrc.ca. If you want to catch either of these hours today or any shows for the past four years, uh, you can find them on my blog space. And these two will be up there shortly after I get home at finding a voice on cfrc.wordpress.com. And coming up right after this announcement, uh, you are going to hear two hours of saltwater music with Rob Carnell, uh, two hours of East Coast music called Saltwater Music with Rob Carnell. Hope you can stay tuned for that. I know I enjoy the show every week. Have a a great long weekend. We'll catch you here next week.
6: This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.